Uh, so you can follow along. Are you ready to play detective? I'm a riddle in nine syllables, an elephant, a ponderous house, a melon strolling on two tendrils, oh, red fruit, ivory fine timbers. This loaf's big with its yeasty rising, money's new minted in this fat purse. I'm a means, a stage, a cow in calf. I've eaten a bag of green apples, boarded the train. There's no getting off. The famous riddle uh, written in 1959 uh, is called Metaphors and was penned by one of the greatest female poets ever, Sylvia Plath. But what is the answer to her riddle? What is Plath in her poem? Well, a line for every month uh, might give it away. But when you realize that, that Plath wrote it, the year before her first child, it's even more obvious, it is a pregnant Plath. And whilst, as a man, I could never get away with penning such descriptions, uh, no doubt many mothers in this room can relate with her humorous cartoon metaphors. An elephant, a ponderous house, a melon strolling on two tendrils, a big loaf that rises to an unbelievable size. The poem begins in jest with very comical images, but it quickly gets much darker, doesn't it? For the red fruits of the large melon depicts blood loss uh, during childbirth, and the elephant's ivory depicts great value, but harvested only in pain. And the bread filled with yeast depicts a bloated body with something unsettling. So that by the time we reach line seven, Plath fears that, that she's just a means to an end, that she has become a stage, a, a spectacle, an, an animal. Indeed, line eight, she realizes that she has eaten a bag of green apples. Plath alludes to Eve's taking of the apple in Genesis 3. And so the great pains of childbirth, which were the upshot. Accordingly, the poem almost ends in a panic, doesn't it? For Plath has now boarded the train of pregnancy. The unstoppable biological wheels are, are now turning. Her groaning body is being changed day by day as she rushes past every gestation station. And the destination is the great groaning of labor. Last four words. There is no getting off. There's no getting off. In Romans chapter 8, and in the passage that Jess has just read to us, Paul uses the same metaphor of Plath's metaphors. For the Apostle Paul takes the picture of one who has boarded that, that pain train of pregnancy to describe what life is like in this world. Paul employs the image of one groaning in the great pains of childbirth to describe that the spirit of a suffering Christian. But as we shall see... Paul does so in order that the first century believers in Rome might not panic like Plath, but that suffering Christians, people like you and me, if we trust in Christ, might hope, indeed might be assured of a glorious life which is coming. And so if you've been with us in this uh, Romans chapter 8 series, you'll remember that when it comes to, to, to living as a confident Christian in a world of sin and suffering, that it is the Holy Spirit who is very much the focus of Paul's encouragement. 
For the Holy Spirit living within Christians assures them that they belong to a new world when everything in this world is painful. Accordingly, if you recall back to uh, verses 1 to 13, you'll recall that we thought about the fact that we are assured by the Spirit of life. And the fact that the Holy Spirit who lives in us helps us when we still wrestle in a sinful world. And the fact that the Holy Spirit helps Christians to, to, to not give in to sin, but to gut sin. The Spirit of life helps us to put sin to death, verse 13. And then in verses 14 to 17, last time we thought about the spirit of adoption. And the fact that the Holy Spirit helps us to be who we are as the children of God. The spirit of adoption helps us to know that we belong to God, that we are his sons, his heirs, verse 17. And that as his heirs, we will receive an inheritance from him. But today, we come to the spirit of groaning and glory. The spirit of groaning and glory. And in short, that the perhaps strange idea or the new idea to you that the Christian's groaning is evidence of their coming glory. That the believer who walks around like Plath did in 1959, who feels like a great melon to all their unbelieving friends and family and a great stage, a great spectacle to a laughing world, who feels the weight of their agonizing pregnancy, who has boarded the train that leads to labor, is actually one who is have to have great assurance that something glorious is on the way and that new life is certainly coming. So here's what I want to do this morning. Here's what I want us to do. Firstly, I want us to walk through our text that we might grasp three theological ideas that Paul states here. And then secondly, I want us to see what Paul calls Christians to consider And as a result of those three theological ideas, I want to make three applications. So three theological points and then three applicatory points. And here's our first uh, simple two-word theological point, creation groans. Creation groans. Uh, Verse 19, please do follow along with me. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Before describing at the actions of the Christian in the present, Paul describes the actions of the creation in the present. Now, Paul, when Paul speaks of the creation here, he, he's not talking about humanity, but rather the subhuman order. Paul is talking about the, the, the trees and the flowers and the, and the rivers and the seas and the fish and the birds and the animals. And though Paul speaks metaphorically and not literally, he tells us that if we could listen in to the internal conversations of of every animal and vegetable and mineral, like some kind of advanced Dr. Doolittle, that we'd actually hear an atrocious, collective, pained groaning that would bear all the hallmarks of the sounds heard from the St. Thomas Midtown delivery ward. For verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning together 
in the pains of childbirth until now. And why does creation groan? Well, there are a number of reasons cited here. But the first reason that the trees and the plants and the animals all groan is because its life is fleeting and it's inescapable and it's excruciating. That is what Paul says in these opening few verses. Verse 20, creation was subjected to futility. That the life of every living thing is fleeting. The word here is the same word used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Creation is like a mist. Life is, is temporary vanity. Creation is meaningless. This life is, is but a vapor. And the fruit in the refrigerator and the flowers on the kitchen table and the family hamster in his little cage, they all point to it. After a few days or a few weeks or a few months, suddenly they're gone. Creation is but a vapor that the short-lived smoke rising from the candles of another birthday cake blown out. Creation groans because it just does not last. Moreover, during its fleeting life, creation is enslaved. Can you see that in verse 21? Every created thing groans because they cannot escape their bondage to corruption. They are bound to a brokenness and a brutality. Environmental devastation is constant. Plagues demolish the crops. Drought destroys livestock. Tornadoes rip through forests and, and pollution ravishes the seas. And creatures prey upon one another in horrifying manner. When my son Benjamin was very young... He absolutely loved watching um, adult nature documentaries. And at first, I thought it was a really sweet thing for a, a toddler to enjoy and watch. But have you ever seen some of those TV nature documentaries? I'd come in and four-year-old Benjamin would be there watching an, an eagle tearing the head off a pelican. And I'd say to Sarah, do you, do you think we should be letting him watch this kind of stuff? Creation is fleeting. It's inescapably broken, and it's brutal. And verse 22, it is painful. Creation groans in the pain of childbirth. Creation is not just trapped in a death spiral, which it somehow is unmoved by, but, a, but it is emotionally and physically and mentally painful. Creation groans because it is inescapable, painful vapor. And yet, if we look carefully at verse 20, a greater reason for creation's groaning is because God subjected creation to this. That the cause for creation's groaning in the present is God's past punishment upon the heads of creation. For God's subjection that Paul refers to here links back to the very first few pages of the Bible when Adam and Eve, not only the crown of creation, but also the custodians of creation, rebelled against the creator. So it's that as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, it was not just the, the, the pain of childbirth for, for the woman, but also the pains of thorns and thistles throughout the land for the man who worked the land. God subjected his world to thorns and thistles. God subjected his world to a brokenness and a brutality and his creation to vanity and vapor. And the reason was to remind every living thing how Adam and all his sons have made a total mess and continue to make a total mess of this world. Creation is great, and yet it has been groaning until this very day 
because those who rule it and were meant to look after it are selfish stewards who have refused to do their job. The theologian Christopher Ashe puts it like this. He says, creation was meant to be the great theater of God's glory, which sang his praises and conveyed his beauties, but creation is now like a great playhouse with a great orchestra where there is great groaning inside it because the lead actors are drunk and the conductor has not bothered to do his job. Creation groans because of what it is now, futile, in bondage to corruption, in great pain, and creation groans because of what it could have been, a much better theater for God's glory and beauty, but finally and ultimately, creation groans because of what it will be soon. Well, you notice that in the middle of verse 20. Look down. Look that it doesn't say God subjected creation to this in punishment, but it says God subjected creation to this in hope. And so this groaning of creation, though painful, though a punishment, is a pregnant groaning. It is a groaning which conveys a deep longing. Creation pants and, and pushes as a pregnant woman, but it does so with a, with a hope of new birth. For creation waits, verse 19, waits with eager longing for when the sons of God will be revealed. When the sons of Adam will no longer be in charge but when the sons of God will be in charge of the new creation. When you and me, those who trust in the Son of God, when the righteous stewards of the new creation will come and freedom from futility and enslavement and pain will arrive at last. As Grady read earlier from Matthew 24, the groaning sound of creation and labor that the agonies of, of drought and flood and earthquake are the beginnings of the birth pains, but also the sound of longing and hope for that which is certainly coming. Creation is beautiful, yet undeniably broken. The creation cries out in, in painful longings of labor. This is not how it was meant to be, and this is not how it will be soon. Accordingly, at this juncture, let me ask you, let me ask you if you're here and you're not a Christian, what is your own narrative for creation? As you turn on the TV and see everything from, from, from COVID to climate change, why do you think the world is as it is? Do you believe that this world is groaning? Do, do you believe that this world has gone wrong and, and is gloriously set to be remade? Or do you believe that this is just how it's meant to be? that there's no story arc of, of creation in this world, there is no wonderful thorn and thistle three beginning, no tragic fall which causes groaning, no hopeful resolution to all this brokenness, no glorious end when all be set free. Is the mature life that you would call your friends to a life which says, with all the coldness of a nature documentary, grow up and stop crying because this is just how the world is. That's just how the world will always be. What hope do you have for Moroccan widows post-earthquake? What hope do you have for Libyan mothers post-flood? Can you live consistently? With no storyline to creation? A worldview with no beginning, no middle, no end? The Christian worldview, friends, 
which not only makes real sense of a world which is simultaneously beautiful and broken, but also gives real hope in the midst of tragedy is one that says creation groans. Creation groans in punishment, but also in the pains of a pregnancy, and so in the hope of a new birth to come. First theological point, verses 19 to 22, creation groans. But second theological point this morning that Paul reveals to us in verse 23, Christians groan. Christians groan. Uh, Verse 23, again, look down with me so you can see I'm not making it up. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. That the Christian life is, is also a life of groaning, which may be a great surprise to some of Paul's readership, given all that he said in this chapter. For as we've seen in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, the Christian is no longer condemned by their sin. And verse 2, the Christian has been set free from their sin. And in verse 9, the Christian now has the spirit of life in them. And in verse 11, the Christian's body will be clothed in immortality. And verse 15, the Christian has been adopted as a child of God. And 17, is an heir of the everlasting kingdom. And as a result of that glorious new existence, we may expect the Christian to have been freed already from a creation which groans. We may expect that the Christian life to be one not of, not of groaning, but of continual grinning. And very sadly, tragically in some quarters, that is what you'll hear some so-called Christians saying. The, the, the Christian life is one of just continual grinning all the way through that the full redemption has already happened, and so bodies fully restored are the norm for those who have enough faith. And so with polished, perfectly straight white teeth, they will grin down TBN channel cameras. And these proponents of a prosperity gospel will tell sick lies to sick people who don't know their Bibles very well. And that the Christian life is never one of groaning, they'll say, but only one of greatness and gold, good health, if they give them some money. Less heretical versions will speak of a Christianity that guarantees more happiness for the happy. Some will tell you that that a life of, of purity and singleness will guarantee marriage. Some will tell you that that Christian homeschooling will guarantee all your children being saved. Some will say that if you read your Bible and you go for a run every day before breakfast, that you are guaranteed a long and happy life. Now, friends, none of those things are wrong. Purity and singleness, a good Christian education, going for a run, reading a Bible, they're all good things. Read Proverbs, you'll see that all those things are good. For there is an order to creation. So that if we live wisely and according to God's word, we're more likely to be happy in this world. But there is also a brokenness to creation. There is a brokenness such that the Christian life is not a guarantee of happiness in the here and now. Indeed, Paul seems to say the very opposite in this chapter. For he says, if you're a Christian, you will groan. In fact, Paul really seeks to emphasize that in verse 23, for he says, we ourselves groan. The English tries to capture something of the Greek emphasis here, for Paul says, we are ourselves, that is, we especially, we groan. To be a Christian is to suffer and sob and sigh. And why? 
Why why as Christians, why do we groan like this? Well, because just like creation, we know this is not how it's meant to be. It's not how it will be seen. And so this verse tells us that not only do Christians groan like the rest of creation because their bodies have not yet been redeemed, that their bodies still have have bodies that, 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 that catch colds and get cancer, that Christians still feel the pain of, of breakup and a funeral. But this verse also tells us that Christians groan because the, the Holy Spirit is in them. They have the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you see that verse 23? An eternal seed of heaven from their future home has been planted in their souls, such that the Christian sighs with a homesickness. Such that the Christian longs for the, for the gray, gray day of harvest. Such that in this life that the Christian exhales, come Lord Jesus. And so friends, if you feel that homesickness, if you're conscious that something is wrong, if you really long for the next world and not this one, be encouraged be encouraged because that groaning is actually something which shows you have the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian. Which brings us to our third theological point. Creation groans, uh, verses 19 to 22. Christians groan, verse 23. And verses 26 to 27, Christ's spirit groans. Christ's spirit groans. Why do Christians groan? Well, as I just said, Christians groan because they have the first fruits of the new creation planted in their hearts, and so they long to go home, and they long for that which is coming. But also Christians groan because they have the same spirit of Christ living in them. And he, he groans on their behalf when they suffer for the sake of God. So why am I making the point that it is the spirit of Christ who groans. Well, first in this chapter, that's the context. That is how the Spirit, that is how he is described in verse 9. He is the Spirit of Christ. Uh, But also verse 15, if you recall, it is the Spirit of Christ that helps us to cry out in the midst of suffering, Abba, Father. For verse 17, those who are children of God will suffer like the Son of God. And so the Spirit of Christ is the same Spirit of the Garden of Gethsemane who helped the Son of God to cry out, Abba, Father, as he faced the cross. And the Spirit of Christ is the Spirit who helped the Son to to pray amid that suffering and declare that the Spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And so amazingly, wonderfully, that is the same Spirit who comforts us when we suffer like Jesus and who groans for us when our bodies are weak. For can you see that in verse 26? Look carefully at this verse. For though mysterious, it is marvelous. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. Friends, I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that, when you have suffered for Christ, when you've felt great weakness, when you have been bullied or or left out at school for holding on to a Christian morality and the truth of Christianity, or or when you felt so feeble as you've tried to share your faith at work, when you've struggled with unwanted sexual desires 
and felt it faint in this body of, of sin and, and struggle. When you have sought to disciple the Lord's people so faithfully, but have been painfully let down just like Jesus. And when you've cried out to God and said like Christ, Lord, I want to be faithful, but I'm suffering so badly. Lord, this is so painful and I don't know what to pray. Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done, but I don't know what to do. Friends, in that moment, delightfully and astonishingly, Christ's spirit is groaning within you, groaning for you. When our words fail, amazingly, the spirit's words do not fail. When our prayers run dry through pain, the spirit, he steps in. And the spirit, he speaks to the father. And helps us when we don't have words and he groans, Lord, come quickly. And so the whole creation groans to God. Every living thing groans in in pregnant pains, your kingdom come. and, And the Christian groans to God, he or she groans in pregnant pains, your kingdom come. And even God the Holy Spirit groans to God the Father. The divine groans to the divine in pregnant pains, your kingdom come. Accordingly, the kingdom of God must be coming. For if God groans and longs for the new creation, then how could it possibly be stopped? As Plath says with panic, so Christians say with great pleasure, despite their temporary pain, we have boarded the train. There's no getting off. Our destination is glory, And creation's groaning and our groaning and God's groaning guarantees that it is coming soon and that we are almost home. So how might we apply these three theological points? Well, in our remaining time, I want to draw attention to three things. uh, Three things which we are to consider in light of the certain hope that we have because everything groans. So firstly, application one, consider that suffering for God must not be compared to glory. Consider that suffering for God must not be compared to glory. Verse 18. In fact, let's look back to verse 17 for context. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When Sylvia Plath was pregnant in 1959, what was foremost in her mind? Well, as we've already discerned from her poem, it was simply the next few weeks. And so Plath was deeply concerned with the way that she would look and that she would not look like most ladies And Plath was troubled by the idea of people laughing, that she would become like a stage show cow. Plath didn't like the thought of an identity change, that she might be briefly known as a mother rather than a world-famous poet. And Plath really feared the end of the train line, the delivery room where red melon-colored blood would flow. She feared the next few weeks And in a sense, Plath was not wrong to do so. Childbearing and childbirth causes great suffering. I'm going to tell you that just watching it is bad enough. 
Indeed, as one who struggles to endure my annual flu shot, I cannot possibly imagine doing it. But though that suffering is undeniably great, undeniably painful, hard, wearying, according to most mothers, it is nothing in comparison to the joy of knowing your baby. You know, 60 years before Plath uh, penned her poem, another equally famous female poet was writing, the great poet and hymn writer, uh, Christina Rossetti, uh, who wrote the carol in the bleak midwinter, was writing. And at the very end of her life, Rossetti was writing a poem about childbearing, and it was called I Know a Baby. And it goes like this. I know a baby, such a baby, round blue eyes and cheeks of pink, such an elbow furrowed with dimples, such a wrist where creases sink. Cuddle and love me, cuddle and love me, grows the mouth of coral pink over the bald head, and oh, the sweet lips, and oh, the sleepy eyes that wink. In truth, however, the poem is just a pipe dream. For Christina Rossetti did not know a baby. Three times Rossetti turned down marriage proposals because her suitors were not Christians. But oh, how she longed for pregnancy. And oh, how she would have endured suffering happily and endured the jokes about looking like a melon and endured the weariness of those nine months and endured the great pain of labor at the end because of what she knew was to come. Those blue eyes with dimples and sweet lips and the mouth which cried, cuddle and love me. And in verse 18, Paul tells the Christians to consider such a comparison. For Paul metaphorically gets out those, those kind of old scales and he says in one side, place all your present suffering all the aching labor pains of this life, particularly the, the, the suffering that comes from the, the sake of Christ and empty it all out of your pockets, that the strange way that, that, that people look at your melon-shaped beliefs and the fact that you identify most with a crucified man and the word of God and not with academic men and women and your own writing and empty out that the laughter and, and, and the mocking on this stage of life and, and the bullying at school and in the office and the hardships of, of parenting in a secular culture, the painful goodbyes you've said for the sake of the gospel, and maybe even the blood that you have shed for its proclamation, empty it all out, empty all the present suffering on that side of the scales. And now, on the other side if you can, dump in the weight of the glory of the future. And watch, watch how all that is in the present side of suffering will, will fly away to the other side of the room as an unimaginable mass of exhilaration and ecstasy is loaded into the other side of the scales. Because the sufferings of this present time are incomparable with the glory of the future time. It's a rather ridiculous image, but Paul considers it, verse 18, and he tells us to, too. Because so often, we choose comfort now, rather than glory later. Which, of course, is not to play down our pain at all. 
Christians don't shrug their shoulders at suffering. On the contrary, Christians are often the, the very first responders when it comes to practical aid. Likewise, last Sunday night, at our prayer service, we prayed for Brenda as she battled cancer and for a husband who also has cancer but does not know Christ yet. Such suffering is immense. And we're not callous to that. We do not speak of it as nothing, but, but in comparison to the glory of going home and being with God forever in perfect bliss, in a perfectly renewed creation which no longer groans with cancer and is away from all sin and all suffering, well, even excruciating pain such as that is like a feather on the scales. And that is what we are to consider in suffering. That the pain of laboring for Christ will finally bring a joy and a delight that is even better than knowing a baby. My Christian friends, consider that suffering for God must not be compared to glory. But that's not all Paul asks the Romans to consider. For the second thing, the second thing that Paul asks his believing readers to consider is their patience. Uh, Application two, consider that the saved by God must be patient for glory. Look with me to verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. At our evening service uh, last Sunday evening, I rather foolishly mentioned that it was 78 days until Christmas. And as I did, numerous eager young eyes uh, lit up all across uh, the sanctuary. Clearly, I had set off that the countdown clock for some children elbowed their, their, their mums and their dads. 78 days, come on, mum and dad, let's do something. And when it comes, not to Christmas... But to the new creation, Paul applauds such childlike eagerness. Indeed, as we've just seen in verse 18, Paul encourages them to consider it and how much better that future will be. Accordingly, he speaks of the eager anticipation of creation, verse 19, and the eager anticipation of Christians, verse 23. However, for those who are saved, who are eagerly looking forward to that day, who are looking forward to to opening the gifts of of new bodies and and, and sinless hearts and, and perfect justice and a world without any sickness or sorrow, the saved are to nurture that childlike eagerness, but the saved are not to be childishly impatient. They're not to force Christmas Day upon the 15th of October. They're not to be angry when the presents don't come right now. They're not to try to manufacture their own gifts in the present when the Father will reveal beautiful, eternal gifts in his time. We're to be patient as those who hope, knowing that our ship will come in soon, knowing that our train is headed for home, knowing that what comes at last will last. Which stands in great contrast to the modern world with all its hopelessness and all its impatience, doesn't it? One of my favorite bands as a teenager uh, was the British rock band Echo and the Bunnymen. And in 1997, at the height of my teenage angst, 
Uh, they wrote a song which I think perfectly encapsulates the impatience of those who do not hope in Christ. Their song, Nothing Ever Lasts Forever, uh, goes like this. I want it now. I want it now. Not the promises of what tomorrow brings. I need to live in dreams today. I'm tired of the song that sorrow sings. I want it now. I want it now. Don't tell me that my ship is coming in. Nothing comes to those who wait. Time's running out the door. You're running in. So I want more than I can get. But just trying to, trying to, trying to forget. Nothing ever lasts forever. Nothing ever lasts forever. Friends, that's the very opposite of the Christian song. For the saved, do not sing impatiently. I want it now. I want it now. Because we have the solid promises of tomorrow. Because our ship is coming in soon. Because something does come to those who wait in Christ. Because we will last forever as Christ does. Now I'm sure that many of us will say, to echo in the bunny man, well of course I'm nothing like you. Nothing like you. I'm not an impatient child craving Christmas today. My faith is more mature. My faith is mature and I'm waiting for heaven And yet, how many of us, how many of us, myself included, get impatiently angry with ourselves when the gift of our own sinlessness is not to be opened by us yet? How many of us get impatiently angry with our kids or or our spouses or our church family when the gifts of their sinless perfection has not yet come and will not come to glory? How many of us get impatiently angry with our city such that we've become absolutely obsessed with social justice uh, far above any evangelism or discipleship because we refuse to wait for Jesus, the great judge who will come and fix all the wrongs of this life? How many of us get impatiently angry with our nation such that we have become obsessed with politics and are now all about the moral decline of our society because we chargely cannot wait for heaven to come and the unseen righteous society of heaven to rule. Friends, again, it's right to groan. Pain in this painful world is painful. And we're to long for a new creation. And as we have opportunity, as Grady prayed, in our lives, in our families' lives, in our church life, in our city's life, in our nation's life, we're to take those opportunities But in a world which teaches us every day to silence that that inner groaning that says, this is not my home. In a world which is so instantaneous and so hopeless that that must have perfect pleasure and perfect justice right now because they know nothing of the historical truth of the certainty of Christ and his death and resurrection. The saved hope, not for what they can see in this world, but hope for what they will see in the world to come. Consider that the saved by God must be patient for glory. I wonder what that patience will look like for you. And very finally, application three. Final point, final few verses from this great passage. Consider that the sons of God must receive mercy. 
consider that the sons of God must receive glory. For the Christian, it's tempting, isn't it? It's tempting, isn't it, to sometimes worry that we will miss out on glory. Indeed, particularly when we're suffering and when we're feeling very far from home, we may worry that we're really going home at all. And so perhaps we begin to question, not not the reality of glory, but begin to question whether his glory will come to us and to question whether we are much like Jesus at all and to question whether God is working for our good. When darkness surrounds us, the the light can feel very, very long way away, can't it? And moreover, when such a glorious future is on offer, there is an understandable nervousness about getting home. We stand in line at the departure lounge. We find ourselves sweating sometimes, fearing that we may have lost the boarding pass or worrying that our names are not on that list. But friends, that is not to be us if we love and trust Christ. That is not to be what we fill our minds with. Instead, we are to consider that glory must, it must come to us. For we are God's chosen sons and daughters. And that is how this wonderful passage ends. With the glorious certainty of that glory. With the marvelous declaration that we cannot lose our saved status and the glory to come. Because they are all part of one unbreakable chain that reaches back before the world even began. For just look at verses 28 and 29. Look down. And we know that. We're able to consider that. For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for that glorious ending for those who are called according to his purpose for, and here's the reason, for this confidence, that unbreakable chain of certain glory for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he called, he also glorified. Can you see? Despite telling them to wait patiently for glory, Paul says that the Christian's glorification is so certain, I can actually write about it in the perfected tense. He has basically already glorified you. It's as good as done. Christian, your glorious destination is certain because God is sovereign and you're not. For let us slowly take in these verses again. For God, first link in the chain, verse 29, for God foreknew you. More than just knowing about us, God knew us personally before we knew him. Before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 1, the Christian was chosen by him. And because of that, God, second link in the chain, predestined you. Verse 30, that is God put his foreknowledge into effect. He allotted for you a ticket for his ship of heaven. He assigned you a seat on his train of glory. He wanted you to become like his son in glory. He wanted you to reach that that same glorious destination as the risen Lord Jesus who is already home. And because of that, God, third link in the chain, God called you. 
God called you, verse 30. God grabbed you on the platform of life. His voice was heard by you on that station intercom when you were just wandering around blindly and without hope. And when you heard his commanding voice, get on the train before it's too late. You could not help but get on. And because of that, God, fourth link in the chain, God justified you. Verse 30, God declared that you are worthy of that seat which transports you to glory. Not because of anything you've done, not because you have paid the price of, of the ticket by your morality, not because you have been to church or been nice, but because Christ purchased it for you. Christ lived the perfect life that you and I have not. Christ died the just death that you and I deserve. And so having been justified, having trusted in the name of Jesus, the very Son of God, you find his name on your ticket and so you must, you must get glory. You have boarded the train and there's no getting off. You've boarded the train and there's no getting off. You must get glory. And what is this glory like? Well, it is a place of no more groaning. 17th century writer Richard Baxter paints the scene of our final destination better than I ever could. And so I'll leave you with his words. This destination, this destination contains a perfect freedom from all the evils that accompanied us through our course in this world. For nothing enters heaven that is unclean. Doubtless, there is no such thing as grief and sorrow there, nor is there such a thing as a pale face, feeble joints, languishing sickness, groaning fears, consuming cares, or whatever deserves the name of evil. A gale of groans, a gale of groans and a stream of tears will accompany us to the very gates, but there they will bid us forever farewell. And our sorrow will be turned to joy. And no one will take our joy from us. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Father, we thank you so much for these sweet trees, trees which explain our deepest inner longings, trees which give us certain hope in the midst of suffering that we go through each and every day. And so, Father, help us, those of us who know your Son, to consider that suffering here is nothing compared to that glory, to consider that we must be patient as we await to go home and to consider that that glorious homecoming because you are sovereign, you stand over it all. And Father, for those here who have no hope, you do not know you, Father, please would you give them life and so certainty of being with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh,